Romans 16, 17 through 20 says this. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent, as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We'll stop right there. So um, this is going to be kind of a different message. When you, when you get to the end of something like Romans, the things that we look at are a little bit different. I think I said last week, we actually looked at a passage last week that was one that a lot of people would normally skip because it's basically Paul greeting people. But um, it, it says some things to us about the church and the way the church is set up and made up and who it's made up of that I think is very valuable for us. I think in this same instance, um, even though uh, this morning's going to look a little bit different as we look through this because this is essentially, we're going to be talking about really identifying and what to do with um, a, a something that Paul is warning us to watch out for. And, um, but it's important. And I think that um, as he's saying it to the church in Rome, I think it bears a lot of importance for us in our church and our world today. So Paul is, um, uh, the way that Romans comes together is that Paul is probably dictating it to someone named Tertius, and then he is writing it down. And um, just when Tertius is finished up writing, he's all done, Paul jumps on at the end, probably grabs the pen or whatever he's using, and Paul himself writes in something personal, uh, like his personal final sort of, you know, words. And Paul does this a few times in epistles. He jumps on at the end and he picks up the pen or a pencil and he writes, they don't have pencils, he picks up the pen and he writes out uh, what it is. That would be a problem. We would not be able to trust the Bibles much if they were writing in, anyway, in pencil. Okay, I'm getting distracted. Sorry. He picks up the pen. Second service, I get distracted. He picks up the pen and he writes. Uh, we read like in Galatians, for example, uh, Paul says towards the end, he says, see how I write to you with big words, big like with these big strokes of my pen, like he's saying, like, look, see, I'm writing to you, and he's kind of saying to them, like, like, I'm emphasizing something, but it's proof to us that Paul does this. He gets on at the end, and he says something as like a final last, like, okay, you know, it's like, it's like, imagine you've been like saying something to your kid or something for, for a long, for hours or whatever, and then they're finally about to walk out there, like, okay, just one last time, I just want to, just one more thing, just, just to make sure that we're clear here, this is what I want you to get, right? Now, Paul likes to, um, he likes to repeat himself. Uh, he's a good communicator, likes to repeat himself. But he doesn't choose to repeat himself here. He likes to elaborate on things. Paul's very clear, and, and he'll, and by clear, I mean like he'll really go into detail on stuff, and he'll really explain something and unpack it in lots of different ways. And sometimes he goes back to a thing, and he unpacks it multiple times or whatever it seems like. But he doesn't do that here. He doesn't go back to something he already talked about before. Paul talks about something specific in his, like, personal final words to this church in Rome, and it's interesting to see what it is that he actually chooses to talk to them about. What is it that Paul says to them? It's this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out. Watch out. It's a warning. 
Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles that are contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. And what he tells the church to do when those people come into their midst and they find that they're dealing with them is to simply avoid them. He's giving them a warning about something that could really cause harm to the church. He says division, it'll cause division, and he says it'll, it'll create obstacles. This is kind of like uh, to the doctrine, contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Now, what's interesting here, and it's important, is that as Paul is cautioning them on what to watch out for and be careful of, he's not saying that it's outside the church. He's basically saying to them, the thing that you guys need to be worried about and cautious of is not it's not outside the church. It's not outside the walls of the church. It's inside the church. He, he's, it would be so easy for him to say. I mean, uh, uh, watch out for the worship of pagan gods and the worship of idols. Watch out for that horrible secular culture out there in Rome. Watch out for the people who are persecuting you and want to harm you and want to make your life impossible and difficult because you follow Jesus and you're a Christian. He doesn't say watch out for all of them because they can cause you so much harm. Why? Because those outside really are limited in how much they can actually harm you and harm the church in the ways that matter the most. What he says to them is that what you need to be careful of and watch out for is those within, or something that can happen inside the midst, inside your own midst. I think that's something that would be, that, that we're not likely to often think. This idea that, like, the biggest dangers to the church might be within the church, not necessarily outside of the church. We would think, no, we look at the secularism of our world, right? Look at the, 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 the more secular that society becomes, right? The more we find ourselves saying, Happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas or something like that, that that is bad for the church. That's bad for us. That, that hurts us, and we need to be aware of it and be cautious of it. Watch out for the culture that's out there corrupting people's lives. It's going to water you down. It's going to taint what you're doing. Watch out for the idols. Watch out for the pagan influences that you encounter. Watch out for the people that make your life hard as Christians. That's not the warning that matters most to us. To us here today, as hard as it is to believe this, the things that, we, that, that, that probably divide the church the most are inside the church. I don't know about you, but I do feel like there is a divided church today. Not just in our church, not in our church specifically even, but just in the church. Big C. I think that we, we break into so many groups and we break over so many different issues. And, and it is the kind of things that happen that people are bringing into the church here in Rome that are the exact same kinds of things that divide our churches now. They cause us to distinguish ourselves, one group from another, to think they're no good and I'm good and we need to separate from each other in some way. Paul's warning to the church is to be on guard against people who can cause a mess amongst them by coming in and introducing these these ideas, these new ideas that will cause problems. Now, back then, the church was a lot less formal than it is now. You didn't have somebody standing on a stage and a bunch of people in chairs and lights and a sound booth and all that stuff. Um, people did teach, and there were people who were identified as elders and shepherds in the congregations, but these were house churches. These were smaller uh, groups. They looked more like a small group that we would have today than like what we have on a Sunday morning. And, um, and as they gathered together, it wasn't just around the formal teaching time. They ate meals together. They developed relationships with each other. And these relationships lasted probably throughout the week before they met again together. 
Uh, and as they develop those relationships with each other, it is totally possible that people who, 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 who got to know each other and, 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 and got connected with each other um, and built relationships with each other could begin to say things to each other, teach each other things. And Paul is saying to really watch out for the people who will come in and do that. And he describes the way that they will do it. Now, we live in a more formal kind of a church environment where we feel like we probably have a lot more checks and balances, so okay, fine. As long as that person doesn't get up on stage, as long as that person doesn't get the platform, then I think we'll be okay, right? But we also live in a time when we have access now to a vast amount of information that would be identified as Christian information, right? Because that's kind of the issue is, you know, you can, uh, you can go to YouTube and you can look up all kinds of things, and you can hear from people who speak on all kinds of things who would say, I'm a Christian, believe this, listen to this, do this. This is happening right now, and you need to live somehow differently because of it, right? We, can, we, can, we see it on social media. We can see it on any bestseller list. You can go into a bookstore. You can look on Amazon. You can download podcasts. Like, there is, there is all information at our fingertips right now, it seems, and the danger here was that people seeking to live the Christian life, which is what we've been talking about since we've been in Romans 12 on, the people seeking to live the Christian life, that they would have other people, their voices come in saying, I also, am, I'm here to help you live the Christian life. And here's what you need to do, and here's what you need to believe. And the people would, he would say, naively believe that if a person simply says, yeah, I agree with you, we're Christians. Yes, I follow Jesus too the same way. Or I'm God-fearing. Or something about us is maybe enough of a connection that you know that I'm on your side and I'm with you. Now listen to me and I'll tell you how to really live. I'll tell you what to really do. And I've got some new ideas that might really shock you. We have access to so many more voices than people did at the church at this time. We have so much more to essentially filter through and filter out. And this is the thing that Paul's encouraging the church to do. So what Paul says is to be on guard, and that starts with knowing that not everybody who says, I'm a Christian and I have a word for you, uh, has a word that is of God, that is biblically true, that is right. But the truth is that we will be more open to direction and truth from a person who, who identifies as that, even if we don't know anything about them beyond that, you know? And so Paul says, well, here's what they'll look like. He goes a step further and he describes them. He's, he's a little disparaging, but I think he's describing them still very specifically. And he says this, he says, such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and by flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. He starts out by saying that these people, um, they're not actually serving Christ. They're serving themselves. My own appetite means my own hunger, my own needs, my own desire. And he's very simple. He's saying, although these people would say, oh, I'm, I'm saying this for the Lord. I'm doing this for the Lord. I'm putting this out there for the Lord. I'm speaking to you, you know, for the Lord that in reality, he says, what these people are really motivated by is their own self-interest. There's something about this that probably benefits them. And he's saying, if you see that, be on guard and go, is this happening? Are they saying this because it benefits them? He says their, their motive, essentially, is what he talks about first. 
Their, their ministry itself, their words itself, are likely to be bringing them more personal gain than to be growing and helping the kingdom of God grow. Uh, what a person does, a person's work, it produces fruit. Scripture uses the language of fruit a lot. It talks about trees and fruit, plants and fruit. You know, I don't know about you, but if it's winter time and there's no leaves on a tree, there's not a good chance I'm going to know what kind of tree it is. Honestly, if it's spring and there's leaves on the tree, still not a great chance I'm going to know what kind of a tree it is, right? But if it starts growing fruit, I've got a much better idea, you know. I'm like, that right there, that's an apple tree because there's apples on it, you know. Pretty easy to see. You can tell a tree by its fruit, even if you don't know anything about trees and all you know is about fruit, which a lot of, we all pretty much know about that stuff. Now imagine that you, uh, you lived in a house that had a bunch of trees that, that grew fruit, right? Now imagine that year after year they lost their leaves and their fruit and you were just like, man, I can't wait to see what that, come, that one comes back like. Like, uh, you don't remember? Like, you've been living here for a while. You have these trees. They grow the fruit. You pick it up. You eat it. It's like, no, after a while you would remember. You would become familiar with the fruit of the trees that are around you, right? And this happens as we get to know people, as we get to know other Christians, as we hear words and things that people speak um, and, and they give us advice and they tell us what to think or what to believe, then we know over time by the fruit of those people and of their words whether or not that was a good source, right? Uh, it would be weird if you didn't know after a while. Well, if you moved into a house and you had a new tree and it was wintertime and you didn't know anything about trees, you'd have to wait to see what does the fruit look like. And Paul begins by saying, like, first of all, uh, this person's, uh, what they're doing they're motivated by self-interest. And how will you know that? Well, self-interest means like, number one, it's going to either be bringing them like wealth. It's going to be bringing them abundance. It's not going to be bringing the kingdom of God abundance as much as them abundance. Or at the very least, it will be probably clear that it's bringing them some kind of abundance. Whether it's that they're getting materially wealthy Jesus denied wealth. The apostles denied wealth. The disciples were, were, were really, Jesus kind of forced them to, to let go of material possessions and, and let go of the desire to be wealthy. Well, not, and, 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 and that's not because money and wealth themselves are evil, but because pers people personally benefiting from the gospel, it tells people something about the message, right? He says, if, if Paul himself says to the church, you know, you know, I didn't benefit personally in what I'm doing. This isn't bringing me a life of wealth and abundance. It's, th that's how you know that it is something that is intended for your flourishing and your growing and for the kingdom of God to flourish and grow. He's like, he's like it, probably this is benefiting them in some material way. And if you see that, if you're like, well, I mean, they are making a lot of money, the person who's saying this thing to me. They are selling a lot of books, the person who's saying this thing. They are getting a tremendous amount of attention, the person who's saying this to me. Because that's the other thing, is it's not just monetary. It may not be monetary. They may not be benefiting materially from it. But what it may be giving them is a tremendous amount of recognition, a tremendous amount of popularity, a tremendous amount of like that kind of validation and affirmation. And he's saying, if you see that, you know, it's like, it's like okay, what's, what's this for? What are they maybe doing this for? Now, uh, since the beginning, since, since the Israelites made a golden calf, uh, we, we know that, like, we, um, as people who were created to worship God, live in the flesh 
have a tendency to want to worship other things instead. In fact, we struggle with the idea of worshiping a God that we can't physically see, so we want to make physical things to worship, even in his own name. That's what they did with the altar that they built out of gold, with this golden calf. We know that God's people said, God, give us a king. And he's like, you don't need a king. You have me. I'm better than a king. Please, God, give us a king. He's like, all right, fine, I'll give you a king. Uh, But you're not going to like it. You're not going to like how it ends. And it doesn't end super well for them that God gives them a physical king, right? We see this happen again and again, that there's something in us that is prone to want a person or something physical in front of us as the thing that we can, like, Um, give our allegiance to, to adore, uh, even in the place of God himself. And it is very easy for us to be attracted to to people who, um, who welcome this. And so he's saying, listen, like these people, as they come in, they are like, um, their God is their stomach, he says, basically. Their, their, their own appetites are the thing that they serve rather than the Lord. And I don't think that probably everyone guilty of what Paul's cautioning the church to watch out for is doing it intentionally. I don't, I don't think that. I, I don't think that, um, that, that all the people out there that are doing this are, are intentionally going out and saying, I want something for myself, um, and so I'm going to say something that's untrue, or I'm going to say something that puts stumbling blocks and obstacles in front of the, in front of the gospel, and I'm going to create division just for myself. But it may still be true that their appetite is a thing driving them to say this and to put this out there. So the question is, um, is this costing them anything or is it benefiting them? Another question is, do I walk away from this person thinking more highly of them or do I walk away thinking more highly of God? Paul knows that we have a tendency to do this. And so he says in, in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians to the church, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me that Chloe's people say that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say you were baptizing in my name. So Paul sees, like, like it's kind of a dig in the end there, too. He's like, I'm glad I didn't baptize you guys because then people might be trying to follow me. Paul sees that there's a tendency that people have, that we have to maybe look for people to align ourselves with and associate with, maybe rather than God himself or the gospel itself or Jesus himself. And, and I think that the danger is that those that would come into the church seeking that would find it because we have that urge to do that. I think we're also prone to think that, um, I think that what we know is that, is that if we're going to encourage one another and if we're going to bring truth of God to one another, that we, we really have to work to continue to point other people to God himself rather than even to us, rather than to those that even bring the message or those that want to encourage, those who want to disciple, those who want to shepherd, those who want in any way to bring the truth of God to another, to recognize that it, it takes work to also continue, continue to point people to God himself and not back to us. 
So we see he talks kind of about their motive and what they would look like. He also goes on to talk about the method. He says it's smooth talk. He says they're known for their smooth talk, smooth speech. He said these people um, are so dangerous because they're such good communicators. They're so dangerous because they're so effective at communication. Isn't that weird? Isn't that crazy? Like, he's saying um, they're persuasive in what they say, and so things that are untrue might seem more reasonable or might seem more palatable or more acceptable because of how good they are at making them seem that way with the words that they use. They have an incredible gift for articulating things in a way that makes them so convincing. And we have a tendency to think that if people are good at communicating and they're talking about God, it means that God has given them a gift of some kind. He's anointed them to do this thing. We go, well, he's given them a gift. That's what we say, right? They have a gift or she has a gift, right? They're anointed. They have this thing. We assume that if someone's good, that that means that God's called them to do that thing. That doesn't exactly line up with the pattern that you often see throughout Scripture, though. Paul himself challenges this idea by saying this again to the church in Corinth. He says, when I came to you, brothers, um, he says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul wasn't the most compelling speaker. I think he, he wrote better, or he dictated to people who wrote better than he himself often spoke. And, 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 and even he, he says it uh, elsewhere that, that like people are surprised that, that when he shows up, it's like, what, really? This is it? This is what we get? Like, I thought you'd be like a powerhouse here, Paul, you know? And he isn't. He's just not like that. We know that God called Moses to lead his people. And the Moses wasn't a great speaker. He needed Aaron to help him. He needed some help. Whether he, like, had legitimate issues that caused him to have difficulty speaking or he just wasn't a good communicator, he just, he struggled with it. Well, there's, there's a reason why God can often choose us to use people like this is because, and Paul says it here, that it is the power of God and the truth of the gospel that is to, to change us and connect with us and transform us, not the, the gifts and the abilities that a person has in presenting that thing. And I think that's really hard for us because we also talked last week about the fact that we do live in a consumer society and that tends to make its way into the way that we do church. And so um, it, we are pretty favorable towards the idea that um, if a person is really good at communicating, then that means that God wants them to talk to us, Right? It means, God, you put this person here to help me understand these things without me having to do maybe more work to try to understand them. Did any of you guys notice that one of my slides is misspelled last week? 
Okay, so I don't know if you've noticed, we kind of doubled down on the wall, the slide screen idea here. Okay, we've kind of put a lot into this. And so when you have a slide and it has like one, like five words on it, and one of them is noticeably misspelled, you, you, you re and you realize that then later on when you're looking at something online and you ask your wife, like, what? Like, did you notice this? And she's like, no. And you're like, okay, well, I don't know what that says, right? But you're like, maybe nobody noticed it. Maybe they did. Who knows? These are things that I do to make sure that you guys don't think at any point, like this guy's a really good communicator, right? But it's hard. I do these things. I have to put them in every, every time to make sure that, that it's not too good. It's not too smooth. I'm more like Paul. I'm more like Moses. Otherwise, your minds would be totally blown away. That was my one chance to kind of reset the narrative on that thing. We'll see if it worked. I do think our modern day world places a tremendously high value on presentation right? Content, content, content. We need it. We want it. We live on it. And so the better someone is at it, the more we would presume, especially if they say, I'm a Christian, God, God's in this, right? They're going to help me understand this or see this thing or finally solve this problem or this tension or this dilemma that I've been frustrated by. This voice that says they're a Christian or that says that they're maybe God-fearing, or maybe even just says God is important, or maybe even just says that, like, uh, Christmas is important, or, or, or faith is important. That's enough for me, um, because they're so good at the way they communicate it that, that I think maybe that's something that I'm supposed to hear. God wants it to make my life easier. But eloquence, we find, can be disguised, can disguise bad theology. It can cover up a corrupt heart. And because we value this so much without realizing it much of the time, I think um, we can even like become dependent on it to such a degree that it can become the identity of even whole churches. We flock to speakers, to personalities, to authors, to influencers who are so good at presenting their message, whatever it is, and we, we just eat it up. We say, break it down into a smaller way, into a smaller package, present it differently, talk to me like you get me, like, like make it connect with me in a way. And the more that someone does, the more we feel like that's God speaking to us. Uh, There's a well-known pastor years ago who did ministry sort of similar to where I was doing ministry, and I had friends that worked at his church with him. His name is Francis Chan. And, and he uh, began a church that was very small, and it eventually became a very large church. And it was built largely on his teaching ministry. And one of the shocking things uh, in this guy's ministry was that he walked away from that at a point. He didn't walk away from it because of scandal. He doesn't, didn't walk away from it because he didn't love the people of the church or the people that he worked with or because he was saying anything that was wrong. He walked away with it because he saw what a dependency on really good communication was doing to the very church that he had built. I was reading an article about it this week, and the person was saying they were interviewing him. They, they said about him, they said he was leading a typical Western evangelical church. And that, according to Chan, was exactly the problem. Everything centered around a speaking gift and a sermon, he says. In other words, people were flocking to a preacher man, Chan, rather than seeking an encounter with God. And then he said this himself, one of the problems at our church is when I hear the words Francis Chan more than I hear the words Holy Spirit. 
So he saw that even um, good communication, saying biblical right things, when it becomes the thing that matters most to us, when it becomes the only thing even that it seems like a church might exist to do, can become unhealthy. And the way he put it was he said, God's given all of us such a variety of gifts, and there's only one gift being used here overall. So he says, like, um, this person is a smooth communicator. They're effective at it. And that's a very hard thing for us to ignore or to, or to maybe stop still and evaluate, especially in the culture in which we live today. He also says that, oh, one other thing is um, just, uh, you know, the, the role of Scripture in our lives is one in, in, in such that, that Scripture brings us encouragement and it brings us joy and it brings us hope and Scripture also brings us things that can be difficult at times. But that's actually a good thing. Hebrews 4 tells us, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I think piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, that doesn't sound comfortable. And I think the truth is that there are times, there are going to be times that we will walk away from God's truth and that we'll be limping a little bit because that process was a little painful. Because it may have revealed something in our own heart, and our own life. It may have divided us in such a way that we're seeing something in ourselves that we were not seeing before and that that may not be entirely a pleasurable experience. But that that's okay. That that's okay because God's truth does that. But we might be drawn and attracted to those who, when they do communicate and speak to us, it does always make us feel good. This is, this, this is the, la the last thing that he says to describe this person. He says they'll use flattery, which basically means they'll come along and they'll be like, hey, come here, come here. I like you. I like you. I'm going to tell you this, right? You're one of the good ones, right? Flattery isn't just being nice to someone. It's either saying things that aren't true just because you want them to like you, or it's saying things that are true just because you want them to like you and to listen to what you have to say. And he says that, that flattery is one of the things that, that, that this person would do. Now, now, what does that look like? Does that look like a person uh, telling you they like your hair, telling you they like your car, telling you they like the sound of your voice, you know? Um, probably not. That doesn't work on us as much. But what that often does look like is that a person simply starts from a place of making us feel as though we're fine. We're good. They, they come and they say through their flattery, listen, you're not the problem, okay? They are. I need to talk to you about them for a second. Like, have you ever wondered why, you know, this thing looks this way or these people act this way, right? It, it, it's always going to come from a place of like, they will, they will give you the impression that you're doing well, you're doing okay, you're just fine. It's the others or the other issue or the other situation that really needs to get dealt with. That's what needs to change. Or the division comes in because it's simply, you can't be with people like that. The church can't be made up of people like you and like them, right? This is where flattery comes in and it can be really dangerous. They leave you feeling better about yourself than they do have you feeling better about others or about God himself. 
And again, I think that's really hard for us. I think that when we're going through hard times and hard situations, that, that a person or that a, that, a, that a word or that an idea or that a message that might make us simply feel like we're doing the right thing and the problem is actually that others are doing the wrong thing. That might be something that we receive pretty well. So Paul says, this is what they look like. This is what they do. This is kind of the methods and the motivation behind what they do. And he says to watch out for them. And he goes on and he tells the church, um, for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So, I think it's important that we see Paul saying this here because I think Paul is saying, I'm not telling you guys this because you're in a bad place. I'm not telling you this because you're so weak in your faith. This isn't just something that people who are, are, you know, a mess need to look out for. He's saying that I recognize that you are seeking to live in obedience. And I think this is where he's saying this particular danger hits. Is he saying that if, if I am saying, listen, I've, I've read Romans, it's changed my life, it's shown me the gospel in ways I've never seen it before. I've also seen what it looks like to live the Christian life. I've seen what it looks like to actually live a life that's transformed by the gospel. It changes everything about the way that I live and what I do. It won't always be easy, but it will be what, how God intended it to be. And that's something that I want. That in seeking to live that out, that we would then take guidance, take advice, take direction from other people who say, well, good news, I'm here to tell you how to live the Christian life. I'm here to tell you what a Christian should do. I'm here to tell you how the church should be. He's saying in our desire to be obedient, that of course we will be more likely to listen to people who say, I'm also a believer. I'm here to tell you what a Christian should do. I don't think that we're so naive that we would want to listen to somebody who says, I represent the opposite of everything that you care about, and now I'm going to tell you how to live your life. In fact, maybe as as we're looking at this passage, maybe all you're thinking about much of the time is those people, right? You go, well, yeah, Paul's kind of telling us that we're supposed to watch out for people who are all these things. Like, no, he's actually saying, like, there are those who would come, and they're, 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 they're smart enough in what they do, to start out by saying, I'm like you, I'm on the same page as you, and, and I'm trying to tell you how it's supposed to be. But he's saying that the things that they teach, the things that they, that they share, and the way that they show people to live the Christian life is a way that brings division amongst people of the church. It's a way that puts obstacles in the path and teaches doctrine that are against the gospel itself. This kind of teaching feeds on the sincere and the obedient. He's not telling them this because they're weak, hypocritical, foolish, or unhealthy, at least not as a church. It's interesting to get a warning like this, but I think that this warning is important because of where it points to us being cautious, which is if I am going to seek to live the Christian life, then it's important that I actually evaluate the different voices that come in, the different perspectives, the the book that someone gives me, the sermon that someone sends me, the thing that someone passes on to me. Is it just because a person's a good communicator? Is it just because a lot of people like them? Is it just because they're very, like, they're very materially successful? Do I think that those are enough? 
Or is it possible that often those people who fall in that category, um, the fruit that is produced ends up being fruit that shows that this is a different kind of tree altogether? In early Greek sort of like legends, there's the story about the Trojan War. And in the Trojan War, the Greeks are fighting against the Trojans and the, um, they, the Trojans withdraw back into Troy and you know, close the gates and the Greeks are like, man, shoot, we're stuck, we can't get them. Oh well, let's hop in our boats and let's go home. And so they decide to give up and go home. But before they do, they go, you know what, we don't wanna be sore losers. So we're gonna make them a big giant horse and we're gonna put it right outside their gates and we're going to send somebody out with it, and they're going to be like, guys, this horse is for you. You need to bring this thing in right now. You'd be fools not to. You need to throw a big party, and we're really sorry. They've already sailed away. See ya. We really feel bad about the whole thing. And then in, like, the worst war decision of all time, uh, the Trojans open up the gates, and it, there's even people saying, like, you got to be kidding me. There's no way you're falling for this. And they're like, no, it's a great idea. They bring the Trojan horse in. They close the gates. And then uh, after a night of partying and, and all kinds of crazy stuff, when everyone's passed out or whatever, they, uh, they let some people out the head or the nose or the mouth of the horse or something. And then they open the gates, and they let all the Greeks in. It turned out they just went to an island and came back. The, the story of the Trojan horse, the idea of a Trojan horse is one that we're pretty familiar with in modern culture because we use that as an example of anything that sort of innocuously causes someone to think that like they can let their guard down and allow someone in and then it kind of creates, uh, you know, havoc, it wreaks havoc. Now, what I don't like about this is that it, it, it can seem like Paul is being paranoid. It can seem like Paul is saying, like, we need to be constantly evaluating and worried about everyone all the time. And I don't think that that's what Paul is saying. I think that what Paul is saying is that when a type of person comes into your relationships or when you get the message of someone or whatever, and they have these characteristics and, um, and they're saying things that are, are, are new things or maybe different things, or maybe they're just saying things that make you feel so... Um, validated and right and good in a confusing, difficult world, that perhaps you should stop. And rather than be naive and assume that everyone who says Christian is Christian, you should evaluate these things. You should ask yourself, should I let this thing in the gate? You know? And he says, and if you decide that you shouldn't, he says, simply ignore them. Simply avoid them is what he says. And that's what we're called to do. It's hard to believe that um, God has set up the church in such a way that no matter how the outside forces may try, they cannot overcome his church. But that is how God has set it up. And our job is to be a place of unity and to be a people who treat one another with love and be a people who uh, do not allow ourselves to be divided by things that other people get divided by to not allow ourselves to add things on top of the gospel and say, if you just do this extra stuff, then you'll be fine. Or take things away from the gospel and say, you don't have to do any of this, and then you'll be fine. But rather say, like, this is what the gospel is, and we're to be a people of unity. And that by doing that, that the church itself will be strong, the church itself will continue to minister in a dark world, no matter what the threats or the forces might be on the outside. Let's pray.